Welcome to the Holy Smokes Podcast, a show about faith, friendship, fine tobacco and drink. I'm Steve Ryder, and I am in Charleston, South Carolina, hanging out with my man Mitch Smith out on his back porch. I came out here for a mastermind meeting, and uh, I was like, well, since I'm in Charleston, Mitch, you happen to be in town? Can I stay with you? And he was like, yes. And so, my man, thanks Glad for having have me, dude. Glad to have you. Always good to have you guys down here. Oh, this is a cool-ass town. It is. It is. uh, So much history. Yeah, and I I definitely want to come back and explore a little bit more. Last night we were hanging out watching some college football, and you were like, you got to bring the boys because there's some fun stuff we can do. Exactly. So, yeah, I'm definitely thinking about that because, yeah, I've got a high school. I told you I've got a classmate that I grew up with in my hometown in Wisconsin, and uh, she's out here too, and so I've got, yeah. Yeah, more reasons to come. Yeah, absolutely. First question, what you smoking? Mm. Padron 1926, the 40th anniversary Which you said is one of your favorite cigars. It is one of my favorites. Uh, When I go to a cigar lounge, I'm generally between a Melania V. Yeah, which I love. uh, It's a great one, uh, but this is, I just have always loved this cigar. Yeah. uh, So it's kind of one of my special ones that I keep. Yeah. Yeah. I'm trying a patina, and uh, it was it's a patina rustic Maduro. With somebody I, don't, I, don't, I wish I wish I remember who someone at the conclave gave me this, and so whoever did it at the conclave, gracias. I'm I'm I just started it, and it's nice. So, so you grew up here in North here in South Carolina, Correct. right? Yep, whole yeah. life. Let, let, tell me, what kind of how home did you grow up in? Uh, a Christian home, so that was the best thing. Uh, my dad and mom built this house out in the country near my mom's family. My mom's a family of thirteen. Yeah. So I lived around all my aunts and uncles, my whole, and cousins, my whole life. So we had, a, as you can imagine, a lot of cousins. Where in the state? So basically, if you could draw a line between Charlotte and Columbia, we're basically right in the middle, just a okay. little to the right. So how, upper, how, part, upper part of the state of South Carolina. How long of a drive is it between Charlotte and Columbia? Literally, I could be in Charlotte in about an hour, and I could be in Columbia in about an hour and 20 okay, minutes. Okay, so you're like a half hour away So yeah. from both. Yeah. yeah, so it was an easy drive. Yeah, so when we, when we would go to town or to the big city, we either go to Charlotte or Columbia. It was just that it was that kind of equal distance. Yeah. And the, t- the closest town I grew up to, which is the town, my address is Kershaw. I was about five miles from downtown, little small town of Kershaw, probably you know, four or 5,000 people. Okay. Yeah. So a little bit bigger than the town I grew up in, but yeah, small town, but yet close enough. Very similar in that, you know, I grew up 30 miles north of Madison. And so if we wanted to go do something... It was just a quick little 30 yeah. minute drive. We'd get a bunch of shopping done in Madison and then yeah. come home. Uh, that, like I said, it was, uh, I grew up, I, I was very fortunate. You know, we had a lot of property, so I could be a boy. I hunted, fished. Yeah. Um, and you're an only child, adopted. Only child. Right? I was adopted at five weeks old. And uh, like I said, I grew up in the country with all my cousins. And it, it's just, you know, I had a, I had a great childhood. I mean, it's just, you know, the church we went to was a lot of family, family reunions. We were just, we yeah. were big about family. That was our big thing. It was just, it was all about family. And of course, when you go up in the country, you know, I did a lot of farming. My dad was a paper mill mechanic. Okay. Got the army, got a job at Springs Mills and then realized, hey, this new paper mill is opening up in, near Rock Hill and took that and 
he says the greatest thing ever happened to him. My dad was just a godly man, great work ethic, a giver. You know, you don't think of people being generous givers as paper mill mechanics. I mean, you generally hear the term generous givers and, you know, they're millionaires or they've just done very well. My dad was a generous giver as a paper mill mechanic and really taught me a lot about um, investing in the kingdom. So I have to say I was very blessed in that. Yeah. So, uh, so that was, uh, you know, growing up. Your mom stayed at home? Mom stayed at home. Um, probably when I was about five, she decided to stay at home. She was a secretary in, in the, for the county. Decided to stay home with me, which was great. And, you know, it's like I said, I just, um, you know, when you grow up out there, it's, it's, it's farming and sports outside of school. Because if you weren't farming, you were playing some sport. I mean, you had to stay busy because, you know, we didn't have a city or anything. So just, we had no option. So it was fun. I mean, I was very fortunate to you know play three sports pretty much my whole life. Really? Yeah. I wasn't great at all of them, but... Um, but one, yeah, I became a decent golfer in high school, and, and that was so what by accident. What were your so sports? Football, basketball, and of course, I played baseball when I was younger. But when I was a teenager, about 14, 15, I picked up a golf club, and it just was a natural thing for me. And so I started investing a little bit more time in golf. And then going to my junior year, pretty much gave up everything to focus on golf because I said, hey, I've got a chance of you know, maybe playing college. You said one of your conference rivals was, ended up. Charlie like- Reimer. Charlie Reimer. One of my um, competitors ended up going on to play at Georgia Tech, became an All-American, played on the Pro Tour, and a lot of people know him from the Golf Channel. He was on the Golf Channel for years, and a real, probably the biggest golf personality in South Carolina now. Great guy, believer, just a yeah. good dude. Uh, he's up in Myrtle Beach now. He's really a big promoter for the Myrtle Beach golf courses, but he was a guy that, you know, he was my number one but he beat my pants off every time. I mean, he was just so freaking good. He was so good. You didn't say that yesterday when we were talking yeah, about this. He you, was, you, yeah. you, you, it's, it kind of sounded like you guys were mm. were, <laughs> were neck and neck. We have we have fun. We you know it's like a like a race car race. Like you can hang with him for the first few laps, but ine- inevitably <laughs> in the end, he, his chip as most good golfers are, his chipping and putting was. Again, pro. I mean, he just had that ability, and he spent a lot of time doing it. So, but I'm proud of him. He's done very well, and he he deserves it. He's a good dude. Yeah. So your golf career got derailed. It did. Yeah. So going into my uh, junior, I was kind of into my junior year, going into my senior year. I got in a car wreck, and uh, my girlfriend and I, one car accident, Honda Accord, no seatbelts on, pouring down rain, leaving her house to go to my parents church on a sunday night yeah lost control of the car and uh driving too fast for conditions and just we were on an old road a road that i drove virtually every day i drove a school bus in high school (laughs) and um so you know again i grew up in the middle of nowhere so you know they said hey and back in those days high school kids drove school buses in south carolina which is crazy to believe today but anyway so um i drove this road literally every day with the school bus so i knew the road inside and out just hit a drain tile. What happened? They'd have been having a. They were doing logging on this road, and there was just a lot of water coming across. I, I hit it. Hit a drain tile. When I hit the drain tile, she got ejected. Ended up dying. Broke collarbone. That's you know, internal damages. Just I, I mean, God saved my life. But the steering wheel is what kept me in the car. I should have been ejected. Cause after I hit the drain tile, we I then hit a pine tree. Oh, so uh, so I had you know I was probably. Probably still a lot of people believe in. I have brain had a little bit of brain you know, injury from hitting uh, hit my head. But um, that was tough. You know, you, yeah. um, you, you, how'd you 
How'd that affect you? Ooh, man. Um, I used to say that was the hardest thing I ever went through in my life, but then another event happened later with my family. But, um, you know, when you when you have the accident and... I mean, it's just, uh, mm. it was life-changing, as anybody could imagine. But her family sued us for one, over a million dollars and never forgave me. That was probably the hardest part was the lawsuit, never forgiving me. And so I turned to alcohol. Alcohol was my thing to turn to. I turned to, and I really wasn't a drinker at that time. I just turned to it to try and kill the pain. Yeah. And then one night, after a lot of drinking for a few months, my youth minister tried to reach me. Um, I wasn't listening. And then uh, one night, I'd been drinking a lot. And Kim Belk and Mary Margaret Small threw me in the car and drove me to Audrey's grave, probably at midnight, shining the lights on Audrey's grave. And they said, if you don't put this behind you, you're going to die. And, and, and who were they? Two girl, two great girls in my high school that really cared about me. And wow. we had a close-knit group of people in high school. We were all just a lot of good people in high school. I mean, I was very fortunate. You know, everybody really helped me through that. Nobody blamed me. They really were just um, very consoling. So I was very fortunate. But that was the turning point when Mary Margaret and Kim did that and that really was life-changing uh, that really turned me around kind of got my head back on straight started playing a little bit more golf got back in my grades and um ended up graduating high school mm. so i was i was fortunate i had i had good people around me everybody cared and you know that's kind of what we talk about right it's community i had good community mm. so you you ended at citadel but you started somewhere else started clemson so you know, I was any kid, you know, I was good in math and science and made good on the SAT. So I said, you know, I grew up going to South Carolina football games, which is crazy. All my family was South Carolina fans. Yeah. And uh, I decided I wanted to be an engineer. Clemson had the best engineering program. So I went to Clemson my freshman year. And again, grew up in a Christian home and my parents didn't drink. I decided, you know, have fun and drank a lot. Not that I was drunk all the time. I just, I drank too much. I drank more than I sh should have. But I got up there, realized I didn't want to be an engineer. Um, that was just not what I wanted to do. And on top of that, I became miserable. And How so? I guess I thought, you know, going to college and having that freedom and ability to drink and, you know, date and all these things. I thought that was going to be just, you know, life changing and all this fun. And I got up there and it, it wasn't satisfying. But instead of going deeper into drugs, which I've never done drug in my life except for cigars and, and alcohol, instead of going deeper and saying, hey, well, let me go try a pot or let me try this, I became miserable. I said, you know, I don't want to go any farther than this. I want to turn and change. So guy I went to high school with, we both played basketball together. We were at a little high school jamboree at Christmas time, and he had his Citadel jacket on. And so uh, I asked Rodney, I said, hey, tell me about the Citadel. He says, hey, it's a you know, it's good school. It's all male military, curfews, da 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 I went through this whole thing. You know, I grew up on a farm. I grew up always getting up early, doing work, doing getting everything done. I said, well, you know, I need that. I need that discipline. So I went to my parents and I said, hey, I'm going to, um, I'm going to transfer to the Citadel. And my mom said, you'll never make it. And that's all I needed. <laughs> that's all I needed. Um, 
It's reverse psychology, probably. Um, but anyway, I went down there, and it was a perfect fit for me. It really was. A lot of people say that's hard to believe, but yeah, it was for me. I needed the discipline. I appreciated discipline. And so when I got down there, I, I really actually enjoyed just the time down there. I made, again, community, met with some great guys, and and I walk, still walk with some of these guys in life. And that's just been a, it's just been a blessing to have gone down there and experienced that. But, you know, finished school and enjoyed it. Well, one of those guys we met with yesterday, and it's coming up in the next Holy Smokes episode, Ashley Early. Great dude. And uh, the way in which you two, I, uh, before and after we were recording, and even a little while we were recording, just the camaraderie that I could tell you guys have had for a long time. Yeah. It, it, was, it was pretty special. Yeah, it was. It was. Ashley, you know, I was, again, when I got the Citadel, I made a commitment to God. I'm staying in Scripture, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna change my life, and I did. And I kind of, um, yeah. You know, did I still go out with the guys and have a beer? Of course I did. But at school, people knew me for having a Bible study in my room. People knew me for leading Fellowship Christian athletes on campus, and um, I mean nobody put me down for it. It's just I tell you, I was I was been so fortunate. And in that, Ashley had gotten to a point when we were at the school where he decided he needed to change and also he needed to change his friend group. And he was just a guy, a guy we connected and we invited him in. And I think that was just a big thing for him. He had a new group of friends that he could trust and walk through life with. And we found a lot of guys like that. A lot of guys, you know, got the Citadel and realized, these, you know, these other things aren't working for me. Let me try this. And we were just always trying to be inviting to get them to come in and just have fellowship. And that's what we did. Which is really kind of what you've started to model here, mm-hmm. here at your home mm-hmm. for this neighborhood and for this community. And we'll get to that yeah. in, in a bit. But uh, you mentioned that Citadel is a male-only school, at least at the time time was. And you said at the time, the College of Charleston, not that far away, was an all-female school. And uh, it just turned a few years before that where they had males, but it was predominantly, I mean, very predominantly female. Yeah. Most of the guys at Citadel date College of Charleston girls. And I did. So that's kind of where it was. <laughs> so it was just easy. You know, said so you, you can go down, you know, go a few miles over. And uh, and everybody went downtown on the weekend. And, and yeah. College of Charleston is, as you probably saw, exactly downtown Charleston. It's a perfect location for a college. Yeah. So when you started at Citadel, you started in a different place than where you finished yeah. in terms of your major. So yeah. Talk about that. Yeah, that well, again, I, I've always loved sports, and I was very fortunate. I always had sports coaches who taught fundamentals. I mean, they were all about the fundamentals. I attributed like the Dean Smiths and the Mike Shashevskys of the world that always focused on the fundamentals. I had those coaches, and I always appreciated it. And so, sports has always been a big part of my life, as you know. We've been watching college football all weekend. So, whenever um, I went back, when I went to the Citadel, I thought I'd go into education to maybe be a high school math teacher. But more importantly, my goal is to coach. Um, probably want to coach basketball. Basketball is the one I enjoyed the most as far as the aspects of the game. I enjoyed basketball. I did that for about a year, you know, finished out my uh, courses and just, I don't know, I took a business course and it just became easy for me. I just, it just, I just enjoyed it and I wanted to know more. I ended up graduating in business with a focus on accounting. I knew I'd never be an accountant, but I did want to know financials and business models and all that stuff. So that's where I ended up with some business. What was it about business that just all of a sudden it clicked and you're like, ooh, 
I want to move this. It's funny you say that. You know, growing up in the country, my cousins and uncles would send me to the farmer's market to sell our produce and products. And I became a salesman. Mm. At 15 and 16, I'm driving these big trucks to the farmer's market and I'm selling 2,000 watermelons, really? negotiating them, bringing 18 wheelers in our field so we could load them directly in the field, save us money, make more money. I, negoti- I was negotiating those contracts at 15 and 16 years old <laughs> and I was good at it. Really? And, and so they would send me. I mean, I'll give you a quick example. I'd go to the watermelon market. And sometimes you wouldn't have like a big load. You'd be at the end of the day and you just take a small load. A small load may be like a deuce and a half type truck you take up there. When I got there, I always had a wet towel and I would polish the top watermelons so they shine better than everyone else's. Because everybody else is coming out to feel dirty, dusty, and everything. Mine shined. So I always had a wet towel and I would clean clean the top That's watermelons off and make them shine and make them pretty. That's genius. And uh, so it's just, I, I just, that became, I said, you know, that's it's just who I am. And, you know, when, you get, when I took, started taking this business classes, those things ring true. Like, man, I, this is what I was doing in the watermelon. You know, I've done this my whole life. So it just became an easy move for me to move into business. Do you remember where that idea came from? I don't. I guess just sitting in that class, I'm like, I get this now. I said, you know, I just thought, man, man, no. if I could take what I learned in the watermelon market and take more business knowledge, I might could do some other things with it. Do you remember where the idea came from to polish the watermelons? Oh, polish the watermelons. I don't. I really don't. I just. That's I, I've always just had this idea of how, how you make something better. You know, that's, yeah. that's, that's one of our core values at my company is continuous improvement. Yeah, I'm always looking for this thing. And that was just one of the things I felt that I, I, I'm always trying to figure out how do I separate myself from someone else in, in business. Yeah. And I just saw that was an easy one. I'm looking at all these dirty watermelons on these trucks. I'm like, well, what about pretty watermelons? <laughs> and, uh, and that's what we did. So it's crazy stuff we did. So you finish at Citadel mm-hmm. and you're dating or did you get married? I dated and that was uh, about five years later before I met Ashley. Okay. Yeah. And uh, um, where'd you go? So me and some guys ended up renting a beach house on Isle of Palms, which was awesome. We had uh, four of us in a beach house, three-bedroom beach house. And um, we uh, fished a lot, hunted a lot, played golf a lot. Uh, always had friends staying over. It was, it was just a great time. And, uh, I mean, some of the best times of my life. So, again, like, this is kind of like the Luke Bryan song, you know, hunting, fishing, loving every day. That was kind of my life at that time. And, um, you know, dated a little bit, but really just enjoyed the guys. We did still so much stuff together. And what'd you do for work? So I started out initially as a state farm agent. Yeah. And that was kind of was a dream of mine just to have a, an agency and a small, I love community, you know, the idea of serving the community I thought would be great. And, um, they went through a change in the, the way they awarded agencies. It used to be you competed for it and they changed it. They had a lawsuit against them yeah. about their process, even though it's competition-based. And when they did that, I got told that, you know, it may be five-plus years before I ever got an agency. I'm like, I can't make this kind of money for five years because you don't make anything working for an agent. I mean, you're really working for an agent to become an agent. And I knew that was going to be impossible. So I literally resigned two weeks later, took some time off, and was playing golf at Wild Dunes. And just so happened we had an opening in our foursome, three of us. We're playing, and they say, hey, we got this guy needs to force him, and he was on vacation and happened to be the regional manager for Dean Witter. 
And he saw that I knew I had a business degree as we played golf and had an accounting degree. So he knew I could understand numbers. And then most importantly, he realized I could talk and probably sell people stuff. He says, yeah. hey, I got an opening in my office on East Bay Street in Charleston. Why don't you look at joining us? And sure enough, went, you know, did the interview, thought that would be great. I thought it'd be good. You know, use my background, my sales, my love of numbers and all that stuff. So I said, well, this would be perfect. And I did. I did it, passed it, uh, trained at World Trade. I was actually on World Trade 30th floor training, lived yeah. there for about a month, for yeah. over a month. And love New York, but I knew I'm a country boy. I, there's no way I'd make it in a big city like that. So I came back, did retail for about a year and a half, was miserable. Just did not enjoy it. At um, that, that time, the industry was going through a big change. Big banks were taking over the investment firms, the Merrill Lynch's, the Dean Witters. Yeah. And when all that happened, the market changed and it, it became almost disadvantaged to be a broker in an eight in like for Dean Witter or Morgan Stanley or Merrill Lynch, it was more advantage to be at the bank because they had direct access to Miss Jones's sixty thousand dollars CD. I didn't have that access. They could look in an account and see every CD it was maturing and know they could put them in an annuity or put them in stocks or mutual funds, or whatever. They had direct access, and it, I just said, you know, I, I don't, I don't want to work. In, I, that was my not my goal to work in the bank. So I decided, you know, it's time to get out. I was not enjoying it anyway, so I said, I'm just going to get out. And um, about that time, the 2X CD-ROM was coming along and got a little creative bent about me. And I said, you know, marketing is probably going to leave VHS tapes. You know, I knew guys that were in video business that were shipping VHS tapes as marketing pieces. And I said, well, it's going to be the CD-ROM. So I said, Can I, you know, how do I get ahead of that curve? So what I did was, you know, crazy. I, I couldn't even do it today. Went to a banker, wrote a simple business plan. I mean, it was very simple. And I think it's the only business plan I've really ever written. And um, <laughs> wrote him a business plan. He gave me a $100,000 line of credit. Unsecured. Unsecured, which is crazy. Yeah. And, and $100,000 in the early 90s. I know. Is, is a lot different than $100,000 mm -hmm. now, 30 years later. Exactly. So I went to, uh, so for whatever reason, I decided I would move to Columbia because I wanted to be in the center of the state because it's kind of hard to do business. In, I thought I'd do business in South Carolina and North Carolina. And, and maybe Atlanta, you know, because how big Atlanta was. So I said, well, I need to be in the center state where I'm closer to businesses than on the coast. So I, and I swore in my whole life I would never live in Columbia. Just never would want to live there. And lo and behold, moved to Columbia, and it was actually turned out to be a blessing in more ways than just business. The week I moved there, I actually met my wife at a little event at the pool for that and uh, we happen to live in the same apartment complex literally like 50 feet from each other and uh met her and that briefly that night and then saturday was the carolina cup which is a huge horse race here in south carolina it's our churchill downs and uh kind of close to your hometown it is close to where i grew up and there i took a date from here in charleston not really thinking anything about it and i get to the cup we'd been there about an hour and I see Ashley walking by in her uh, horse, you know, her dressed up self with her hat and everything. And I'm like, hmm, that's the girl I want to be with. And again, I just met her literally for like five minutes that Thursday night. So the girl I was with said, hey, I'm going to go see some of my college sorority sisters because she went to a, a, a school uh, in here in South Carolina. So she went to see them. Well, I knew where Ashley was, but I told her, I said, I'm going to go see some friends and family because I have a lot of family to go to the cup. And I said, well, I'm going to go find them. Well, I knew where Ashley was, so I went straight to their tailgate spot, met her, talked to her for a little bit, 
it just so happened just near their location, somebody put up a parquet floor, much similar to like the Boston Old Boston Garden parquet floor under a tent and had beach music playing. And I know how to shag dance down here. That's a big thing down here in the South. So um, I asked her, I said, hey, would you want to go dance? And we danced for like three hours together. And so where was the other girl at the time? She was hanging out with her shorty. So evidently came back to the car several times looking for me because my friend, I was there with my friends and their wives. And I don't know if they really knew what was going on. You know, my friends and their wives did that. I kind of hightailed it to go find Ashley. So thankfully they were able to keep cover for me while I was with Ashley. So at the end of dancing, honestly, I need to get back. I said, Hey, my friends are having this big, this kind of a final big dinner tonight. Good Italian family called the Lavotis and, so sure enough, I asked Ashley to go. And <clears throat> after a little bit of persuasion, she decided, yeah, I'll go with you. So I'm walking back to the car, and I'm thinking, oh, crap. I invited Molly to this thing. So I'm thinking, I'm going to be in a bad situation here because I got to tell Molly. I got to tell Molly I can't take her. Well, thankfully, when I got back to the car, Molly was so pissed off. She puts her hands on her hips. She said, take me home. Took her home, got a shower, picked up Ashley, and we've been together ever since. <laughs> so it's a crazy story. And uh, and my friend, and here's the crazy thing. Ashley didn't know for a while what had happened till my friend's wife said, did you ever know that Mitch was actually at the cup with another girl when y'all met? And I then had to kind of relay the story that Molly had been there. So it was just a <laughs> crazy story, but it's fun. It's a great story in the family. Um, matter of fact, that night going to the dinner, I called Miss Lavodi. I said, Miss Lavodi, I'm, and this literally happened after meeting her five minutes and dancing with her three hours. I told Miss Lavady, I said, Miss Lavady, I'm bringing a girl tonight. It's the woman I'm going to marry. She says, Mitch, I'll believe it when I see it. <laughs> so uh, she knew me very well. And sure enough, it was the, the girl I would marry. And that night on the way back from that dinner, actually, I, I just asked her about her faith. And, man, she lit up when she had the opportunity to do that. And I knew. This was a godly woman. Knowing she's beautiful, she was a godly woman, and she was definitely going to be the one I need to hold on to, and, and I did. She's a special woman. Mm-hmm. I've, I've really enjoyed hanging out with, with the two of you and dinner last night. And yeah, she's cool, man. I tell you, I'm very blessed. And a big college football fan, too. I mean, oh, she, she loves college football as much as I do, especially Georgia Bulldogs. Yeah, You saw her last night standing five feet from the TV screaming. <laughs> <laughs> So you two were both in the same apartment complex mm-hmm. and your just relationship kind of grew from there. Yep. She was just started her, do- when we met, she had just started her doctorate program. So I'd come home at night. In pharmacy. In pharmacy, in pharmacy. And um, I'd come home at night, literally would cook dinner. I'm a pretty decent cook. So I would cook dinner and she would come over and eat and then start studying. And she'd literally just, I'd go watch something or get on my computer and work and she would do her studying. And we literally did that for a year and then ended up getting married. Yeah. We got married in September of 95, so it was not long after she finished her doctorate program. So you're in Columbia at the time. We're in Columbia. I ended up staying there 18 years, a really? place I said not I long. never would leave. Yeah, We found a church. Um, matter of fact, when I was here, I was at East Cooper Baptist Church, the church that was instrumental in my life change at East Cooper at, um, in Charleston. Crazy story on that. So you know, I told you I came to the Citadel going to change my life. And for people that know military and or military schools, you know, um, coming to attention when somebody enters the door and all this stuff. So I, literally, was, I was a knob. We had finished hell week. It was about a month into school, my knob year at the Citadel. And I'm sitting there in my boxers reading my Bible. And I had a, just a, 
I thought a dickhead for a first sergeant. He was my cadre first sergeant and all that stuff. Just, you know, tip, has to be mean. You're trying to weed people out, da 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 So next day, I'm sitting there reading my Bible. My door gets kicked in, which is typical. They just praise into your room because they want to see what you're doing. I'm reading my Bible. And, of course, when they come in, you have to immediately stand attention, start bracing, put your knee, chin down, brace, hold your arms down. And he says, he sees I'm reading the Bible. He says, Smith, are you reading the Bible? And I'm thinking, oh, man, my first persecution. And I said, sir, sir, yes, sir. He says, you're going to church with me Sunday. Took me to East Cooper Baptist Church, a guy named Buster Brown, who, um, as you'll hear, and Ashley also had an instrumental part in his life. Buster had been a football player at the Citadel. But after Citadel, instead of going to maybe play in another level, he went to become a missionary. He went to seminary at Southwestern, then went to be a missionary in Singapore. Had come back to be a preacher. And, and this was the first years of his preaching. And uh, I, again, I grew up in the church. But I guess it was just, it was the time for me to start listening and hearing. My ears were open. But his preaching just changed me. I heard things I'd never heard for really? obvious reasons. Yeah. Like what? Well, you know, one, you know, you know, the churches I grew up in, you know, most of the pastors did not have any theology training to the small church. You know, my churches were like, I grew up in were like 60 people. I mean, there's small churches. He had been theologically trained. So now I'm here. Like, I mean, I never heard of Jonathan Edwards. I never, never heard of Martin Luther in my life. I never heard of Spurgeon in my life. I mean, all these people that he was alluding to in his sermons See, he was a big C.S. Lewis. Lewis. I mean, all these guys I had never heard of in my entire life, and I'm 20 years old. And so I started hearing about these guys along with Scripture, and then, you know, what their thought was about that verse, not just his thought, but what Spurgeon thought or what C.S. Lewis thought or what Jonathan Edwards thought. And it just, my mind started opening these things, and that's where I grew, just grew spiritually. And thankfully there, and a guy named Rick Mosteller, Will Haney, and these other men that became elders in my life, mentors in my life, just spoke truth to me and would mm. let me ask questions. Ooh. And that was just really cool. So I just grew so much at the Citadel. I mean, tremendously. So then we moved to Columbia. I went to Buster and I said, his name is Buster Brown. I went to Buster. I said, hey, where do I go to church in Columbia? I told him I was moving. He says, I was thinking he's going to say, you know, First Baptist or some Baptist church. He says, you go to First Presbyterian. You sit on a guy named Mark Ross and Glenn Connect's teaching. And stay there and learn as much as you can. And daggum, if he wasn't right. Wow. We were there 18 years under the, those guys wow. preaching. And wow. Ash and I both just grew tremendously for 18 years. So I ended up, I ended up teaching at First Press. I taught the men's class. I, my father, governor today, Governor Henry McMaster, I taught his men's Sunday school class for two years. So it just it was just a great thing. Friday morning Bible study, what about 40 men for like 18, I mean, literally 18 years. But then a gentleman by the name of Marion Davis, a guy sat beside me. My very first time going to first president went by myself. I, there was one seat left in Mark Ross's class called Can We Trust the Bible? That was the name of the class. And I sat beside a guy named Marion Davis, and he became a mentor, an investor. And I mean, we talk. When I drive through Columbia, I always call him and check on him. And he just became such a mentor in my life. Matter of fact, when Ash and I were engaged, you know, we went through our counseling with the pastor with Glenn Connect. But more importantly, Marion and his, Kate, his wife, discipled Ashley mm. before our marriage. We went through the Navigator study, mm-hmm. and Marion t- discipled me at the same time. So we would go in different rooms and go through our—they would they disciples for almost a year. And 
Marin has been, his kids have worked for me in my business. And like I said, he was also been an investor in one of my companies. He's just been a statue. And he's done that for many people, not just me. He's done that for so many people. He's just a godly man. And I'm thankful to have him, have him in my life. So I was fortunate. You know, you growing up, you know, we, you know, we hit on this a little bit last night. You know, our, our people, our dad's generation, they didn't see those relationships as being so beneficial. But for some reason or another, I don't, I don't know why I did. I sought it out. I was not the guy that you know, somebody sought me out. I sought them out. Like I saw people I wanted to learn more from. So I deliberately looked up those people and spent time yeah. with them. Yeah. And that was just life changing. Mm. And I think that's been so, so you know, one of the biggest parts of my life, both spiritually and in business. Mm. So how did that company do? Mm. Well, the digital marketing company. So the first company, yeah. So six months into our, you know, we're getting some small contracts, Harris Teeter, just small contracts. And that's a grocery store down here. You know, doing digital marketing on CD-ROM. And I'm thinking, you know, trying to do, back in those days, you remember kiosk at malls and stuff. I said, well, we'll start developing kiosk. And then we started, we found this little piece of software where we actually could track video interaction through a Windows 311 network. So we could display the video on the CD-ROM, but then do the content and tracking of who's interacting with it on Windows 3.1 network using the software. And a company named Herc Selenies got wind that we could do that out of Charlotte, North Carolina, a big chemical company. And so they asked us, hey, are you sure you can do video and you can do this? So, well, hey, we've got all the safety training around the world we need to put online because we got to track all this for compliance. And they'd had a big accident in another country, which was really forcing them to move on this quick. We land a $660,000 contract in 1994, just within our first year, and we took off. And the next thing you know, we're doing Dow Chemical. Then we're doing Hewlett Packard. Then we're doing Nike. And it just kept growing and growing and growing. The problem was we grew, but me and my partner grew apart. Oh, no. He was 15 years older than me. And... You know, he was ready to take advantage of the benefits of success. I was young. Ashley's making good money. I'm making good money. I wanted to keep reinvesting in the company. He was ready to take it out. I was ready to invest it. So we just went different ways. I call it the foxhole theory. You know, when you start out in battle and you're in a foxhole, you don't care if the person beside you is black, white, purple, Muslim, Indian. It doesn't matter. Hindu, whatever. You're trying to protect your ass and to live. And that's what we were doing. You know, when you start a business, you're trying to survive. Yeah. Well, we had success. And when we came out of the foxhole, we went different ways. Mm. And Steve is a good guy, but it just it just wasn't working. And we got to a point where I said, you know, if we don't if we don't buy each other out, we're gonna kill each other. <laughs> it's just getting that bad. And so we decided it just, we couldn't make it come up with an agreement. So we said, let's just sell the company and see what happens. And that's what we did. We sold the company. Regretfully, even though I have a business ground, I make some bad business decisions. I sold to a publicly held company in the middle of the dot-com hype, and I, t- I sold mainly for stock. I took 85% stock, 15% cash. Because, again, I'm thinking long-term. Publicly held company, they hired me to run mergers and acquisition because of my background, mm-hmm. and said, hey, you go do M&A, help us find companies. We had a nice stash of capital to go acquire companies, so I did. Spent a lot of time in San Francisco, as you can imagine, in that time frame. And then, of course, the bubble burst, and our stock went from, you know, here to zero. I remember I was playing golf with Marion Davis the day it went to zero, my mentor. And 
saw it go to nothing. But thankfully, when it went to nothing, I had already left. I saw some things that were happening. Um, it, everybody at that time, when, when things were getting difficult, capital tighten up, you see what's happening in the market. Bad business decisions start happening ethically. You know, SEC, and again, we're a public health company, so I knew SEC law yeah. for the most part. No, I'm not SEC, yeah, but yeah. trade, I knew what you could and couldn't do. Um, you can't put out a statement that you're acquiring someone when you weren't even anywhere near getting that done. I mean, just things started happening. It went right. I resigned. Uh, of course, they came after me, you know, because I was under a contract, employment contract. And, I, and I, I said, listen, I got paperwork to back me up. And they basically let me go. I, I did. I kept records of everything just because I knew I needed to cover my butt because I just knew this was probably not going well. Those guys actually got this. Uh, two of the guys were from out of the country, got deported back then on the Homeland Security then. But whatever, they got yeah. sent out of the country for by SEC. So, again, I got out at the right time. And, you know, I tell people I barely got into college and I barely got out of college. And I've been in corporate learning my whole 27 years. It's crazy. Like, who would have ever thought I'd be doing this? Well, I had this idea based on our success in the previous company that was called uh, Pinnacle East. I had this idea of creating a, pl- a new learning platform. I think it was in 1999. And so I went to Marion and some of his, his brother and a couple other mentors of mine that were at the church, just wealthy businessmen that had done very well. And we put together about a half million dollar package to capital to fund a new platform. And that became Acadia and um, had that company for eight years. And we sold that one for cash, um, <laughs> not stock. And um, so that turned out to be a good one. We had some great people. I still have people on my team today that are on that team. That does just been uh it was just a great run. It was just a good timing, great run. And what did you guys do with that? So we built a learning management platform back in the day, just before SaaS, software as a service, got big. And we were having success. We, you know, my, my motto has always been, go get the top person in a vertical and then work down. And in that day, we landed Aflac, Darden Restaurants, Northrop Grumman. I mean, we were landing the big companies. And, uh, you know, thankfully we had success. You know, I had, I could parlay my success from Hewlett Packard and Nike. And so I had a track record that really helped. And I knew the industry inside and out. I and mean, even at that time, because it was so young an industry. And here I was, you know, at this time I almost had nine years' experience in this at a, such a young industry. And we built a platform, had 275 clients and converted to about halfway through the company, converted to a software as a service model, recurring revenue which mm-hmm. became the big thing. Yeah. And so we grew that. And I just, I grew tired. Now I look back, I've, I've learned stuff. I look back and say, I wish I could have done these things differently. I just grew tired. I, I grew bored. I like starting things. And we got to a point where it was more it's maintenance. Humming. It yeah. was humming. It was humming. It was a maintenance mode. And I just got bored and got interested in other stuff. And I said, you know, it's just time to probably sell it. But I didn't know what was about to happen. So I hadn't made the final decision to sell it. So I was having success. Columbia's not a big, you know, it's probably half a million then. So, you know, you're successful. You do the events. So I was on all these nonprofit boards. I'm a deacon at church. Um, I'm doing what I'm, you know, I see every successful guy supposed to. You're supposed to get involved in the community. So I did. And then I announced a run for state senate against a 26-year incumbent. And two months after I announced my run for state Senate, I started having rectal bleeding and Mm. I didn't know what it was from. Mm. So my doctor said, hey, it's probably internal hemorrhoid, but since you're adopted, let's do a, I'm 39, 
just turned 39. Let's do a colonoscopy just to be sure. So you go in for my colonoscopy. And uh, I wake up from my colonoscopy and my doctor tells you something you don't want to hear. Hey, I just want you to know we found something. I got a biopsy of it. And we'll know probably in five days what the results are. So here I'm thinking, I may have colon cancer. Mm-hmm. So I go back to the house, not fearful, not threatening anything, but knowing if I have to go through colon cancer treatment, I got to change my life. I can't go through treatment and live. I mean, I'm gone all the time, whether it be business, board meeting, deacons meeting, something. Uh, and now politicking. So I'm gone all the time. Well, Friday, I didn't go to the office. I went downstairs. I had an office overlooked the lake we lived on uh, in Columbia. I went down to my office and I said, okay, I got, I got to get my priorities right here. If I have to go through this, what's going to matter? So that day, Friday, I decided I needed to get out of politics. There was no way I could do that, especially if I had to go through treatment. I couldn't. I mean, big county, 26-year incumbent. The chances were, and I had to raise a lot of money. I had to see a lot of people. So that was, I know. So I checked that one off. Saturday, I wrote down all the boards and all the things I was involved with. And I said, I'm only going to stay on the things I'm passionate about. And there's like 10 things. And there was only one that I was truly passionate. I felt purposefully I needed to be there, and I was passionate about it. Mm-hmm. So I marked off the other nine. I'll and what was resign. that one? What was that one? It was called the BIPAC board. It was, a, it was a, like a business political education committee. So what it was, it was to educate legislators about business impacts on legislation they were looking at passing. Like, what was the negative consequence? What was the positive consequence? Which I could see why it was very oh, yeah. I- I- important to you. Okay. And I was kind of the technology route. Again, remember, at this time, I mean, I wasn't the biggest technology company in Columbia by far, but I was one of the most involved. So I had you know some leverage with tech on, on the impacts of technology and all this stuff. So I was kind of the technology guy, but I'm along with the guy that ran the railroad for South Carolina for CSX, the head of Wells Fargo Bank. For South Carolina, so I'm on there with these you know very prominent guys. So it was it was a great learning experience for me being around these men and women. But I just knew I could still have a purpose in doing that. So that was the only one I kept. So that was Saturday, Sunday. I go to church. I'm like, man, I'm in a church with two thousand plus people. There's plenty of people here who can be a deacon, and I didn't enjoy deacon meetings. So uh, I'm not big on meetings anyway. <laughs> I was on all these boards. I've gone all these meetings. I was like, no wonder I was miserable. So uh, I wasn't miserable. I just didn't enjoy it as much. Yeah, I enjoyed the fellowship and the community of it, and more so than sitting in a meeting discussing some of these things. So I said, you know, I don't have to be a deacon. So I go back to office on Monday. At that time, I had Acadia, I had Root Loud, and I had a small construction company. Why I did that, I don't know. But anyway, so. Go to office Monday, and I'm be gone now for a few days. And I wouldn't say all hell broke loose, but just so much stuff came at me Monday I wasn't ready for because I knew the next day I won't find my results. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. You've got these pending results. Mm-hmm. So I go to my assistant. I said, listen, I mean, it was like, I was probably not even there an hour. I said, listen, I'm going back home. I'll probably see you Wednesday. Just y'all take, y'all, I always equip my team. I, I did not micromanage. So they didn't need me to make a decision. I always gave them the ability to make decisions. So that was not about micromanaging. They were just bringing it to me. Hey, here's what's going on, da 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 da. And I just wasn't ready to hear it yet. So I go home and I say, God, I, I can't deal with three companies. I got to figure out one, you know. So I just sat there and literally that day and prayed about it. I mean, literally spent the whole day and I literally did the you know reasons to get rid of this one, keep this one, all that stuff. 
And at the end of the day, I walk upstairs to see Ashley. We, she, we had, um, we just had Mary Claire, so we just had our third child. I went upstairs and Ashley's getting dinner. I said, hey, I got good news and bad news. She said, what's that? I said, well, the bad news, the good news is, is I'm gonna be home a lot more. She said, what's the bad news? I says, I can't tell you what we're gonna be living in or where we're gonna be living, but it, it won't probably be this house. And she says, that doesn't matter to me. That's, you know, that's not why we got married. So that was very thankful. The company that God told me to keep was Root Loud, which is the one I made the least amount of money on and to get rid of the other two. So it worked out that the employees bought out the construction company. So that was easy. It wasn't a big one, but they took over the assets. I had a lot of equipment. And thank you. We had a lot of equipment. So thankfully they took me out from that, a lot of Caterpillar equipment and all this stuff. So that was good. And then I went to my board, I called a board meeting for the next week with my mentors and said, hey, I think it's time to sell the company. And I gave my reasons why. And they were all just good people. I mean, we'd have a board meeting. We spent the first hour praying and talking about me and how am I treating Ashley? How am I treating Ooh. my kids? Ooh, we wow. spent more on that than we then we would get Ooh. to the business. That's cool. Mm -hmm. I was very fortunate. Very fortunate to have men in my life that cared more about my family than the business. Their money. Yeah. They care more about me and, and Ashley. And, and they loved Ashley too, and the kids. So I was just so fortunate to have that in my life. Uh, so for all the men out there, if you, if you can start out your business meetings about family first and all that before you get the money, you, you're going to have a much successful, I mean, you're going to be much happier and more successful. I just really believe that. Yeah. So uh, we agreed. And it took about a, a year to, you know, sell a company of that size to me. You, know, you got different people. We were courted by and went through due diligence with one publicly held company and that fell through at the very last minute. Then this other investment firm came in and bought us out and Jason named the company and all this. And I knew it's just time to exit. They asked me to stay on. I stayed on for six months, just consult. I said, I'll consult for six months, but I'm not staying on long-term. But getting back to the story, I tell Ashley that, Tuesday, I find out that it, it was benign, but it was a carcinoid tumor, so they had to take it out. So I lost eight inches of my colon and my appendix. And um, healed. from then on, I've been fine, haven't had any other issues, thankfully. So nothing really came out of the, you know, from that. So everything's fine from then on physically. And um, took six months off. Um, and that's when I really realized how much time I had and what I could do with it. And about the time I started doing that, I started just making notes about just things in my life, the things that were, had happened. I, I really was keeping it more as a diary for my kids and for them to realize what dad had gone through and what, what dad realized came through this, that your faith and family mattered more than anything else. So by the time I'm kind of, I basically I was writing an outline for a book, I go down to meet a guy named Chalmers Culbert who had been another man in my life, just a very instrumental guy I met through, um, some of the fellowship guys out of D.C. He lived uh, in Johnson City, just outside of Aiken, South Carolina. A little small town. So I'm driving into small town. So he had just found out he had stomach cancer and was going to have his stomach removed at the Moke University the next week. So if you can imagine what this guy's about to go through. He's an older gentleman. He had already retired. So I go down there. His wife's name is Dixie. And I go down there and spend the day with him, just to go down and spend time with him and pray with him. God had given me this time to now do this. And I saw the value of it. So I just took the day off. I told him I'm taking the day off and go spend time with Chalmers. 
driving in this little small town, I saw this self-storage facility. I thought, that was weird. I've never seen a self I've never paid attention to them. But I'm in a small town. I'm like, yeah, when you grow up in a small town, you got barns and you got land to put crap on. You don't need a self-storage facility like you do in the city. But there was one. So he and I are talking. And I said, Tom, you know, you're a commercial builder. I said, I remember one time you said you had some self-storage facilities, which I didn't think much of. Did you build that one out the edge of town? He said, yeah, it's mine. I said, do you make money on that thing? He said, Mitch. That thing's been full since the day I opened it. He says, I'm, you know, he's making, I don't know how many thousand, 7,000 a month off of it, some kind of crazy number off that one. And I said, what do people put in there? And uh, his answer was junk. So he said, the first lady that I rented the first space to paid me like $65, $75 a month. And this had been like seven years to store her quilting and Southern Living magazines. The second guy had a broken pool table with a leg broke on there or something he put in there. The third guy was a motorcycle, Harley motorcycle that wouldn't work. And he just kept telling me story after story of people that had been in there this whole time and the, their stuff was still in there. So you think, you know, seven years at 65 a month, that's a lot of money to store junk. So anyway, I'm driving back to Columbia after that day and we you know, had prayed together and everything. I'm driving back and next time I'm starting seeing these things everywhere. I just never paid attention to it. It's like when you get a car, and you realize now everybody's got the same kind of, you never noticed that car, but you buy that car and you realize everybody's got the same car you got or something like, you know, to that yeah. effect. So I get back and I start realizing the junk, and, and I'm, I'm kind of telling Ashley the story and I'm talking about, I can't people do with this junk. And then it hit me. I had the same junk. Mine, mine wasn't physical. Mine was between my ears. I bought in this lie that if you're successful, you're supposed to do all these things, be gone at night doing these events and da 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 da. And, and I'm not saying it's for everybody. Yeah. For me, that was for me. Yeah. And um, I said, yeah, the junk for me was between my ears. So then I started writing the book, Junk, and it's like 16 chapters. And I just started noticing all the areas of junk. So my junk, my best friend in life, Stone Crider, you know, he's got like, you know, two and three 60 plus thousand dollar cars. But he doesn't park them in his double car garage because his garage is full of junk. And he knows he, he always laughs when I say that because he has one of the first chapters in the book. and He's one of my best friends. But then, you know, I had a neighbor three houses down from me in Columbia who passed away. His wife passed away first and his he passed away. And I saw his kids who were from out of town bring a huge dumpster, pull it down to his driveway. And they literally took everything out of his house and threw it in the dumpster. Mm. Things that he probably thought they would want and inherit, they threw it away and put it in the dumpster and then revitalized, refurbished the house and sold it. So that was your inheritance, their junk was a chapter that came about. And so it's just, just different things that I noticed that we just as, um, as people, the, the, those things that we say are precious to us, but we put it in the attic or, hey, this is sentimental, but I'm going to put it in a self-storage facility. And it stays there for years. Was it really sentimental? Did it really mean that much? And that's where that whole thing came from. So, um, so then after six months, crazy story of probably of my business stories was I noticed we were homeschooled. You know, we started homeschooling. Our whole neighborhood homeschooled. But we had been doing it a few years at this time. And I noticed that when women would come to talk to my wife about, hey, I'm looking at homeschooling. What do you use? I started listening. The questions they were asking were the same ones we had asked, but they were the wrong questions. So I 
said, okay. You would ask as a homeschooling yeah, as a homeschool, family. Yeah. So I would say to you, hey, what are you using for second grade math? And you say Saxon. You say, well, I'm going to use Saxon. But here's the great thing about homeschooling. There's so much different types of curriculum. If you don't know your teaching style as a mother or father, Ooh. and you don't know the kid's learning style, you may be using the wrong curriculum. And I can promise you, we had a closet full of curriculum that we thought we were going to use, but our, it, our, either Ashley didn't like it or my kids didn't like it. Like, it just didn't work. And we just threw it in the closet. I mean, back in those days, they did start re, re- reselling the stuff, but we just learned how to closet of stuff we'd never, you know, hundreds of dollars of stuff we just never used because yeah. it didn't fit. So I said, how do we solve that problem? So I, I did what the easiest thing to do, if you offer a home, so I came to this idea. I'm going to ask all the ladies in the homeschool community in the where we were, if you'll come, you had to homeschool five years, I'll give you a $25 Target gift card if you'll come, and we're going to do like a brainstorming session. Well, you mean, you offer a homeschool mom $25 Target gift coupon, daggum, they will show up. We had a house full of women. And I took a big old board up, put a board up, and we went through. We listed every question you wish you'd asked, and there must have been 50 on there. Ooh. But we kept narrowing it, kind of like design thinking, narrowing it down to the 10 that really, really mattered. Actually, we narrowed it down to eight. And then uh, um, then I went and hired a team out of, um, they were in Euro- a Christian group out of Europe that had American base, but they happened to live in Europe at the time. They wrote me a 20-question assessment for your teaching style is generally your learning style. So for a mom that's you know, a visual teacher, they are visual learners. It's just the way it kind of generally yeah. works out. Yeah. So, But it's hard to explain that to them. So I said, let's create a teacher assessment, teaching style assessment, and a learning style assessment for the child. And then you answer So I figured it out because I knew all the curriculums. I studied all the curriculums, Apologia, Saxon, Sunlight. I knew all these guys. I say, well, if I know the answer to these questions, I can then recommend the curriculum, the two of the curriculums that you should be looking at based on your teaching style, learning style, and these other eight questions you answered. So I was going to digit, I was building kind of like a, not AI, but, you know, kind of a little tool, an HTML tool that would do this decision for you. And then in it, it would recommend the curriculum. So I said, hmm, if I know the curriculum they need to buy, I'm going to go negotiate with like Christian book distributors that if I recommend, I get a piece of the cut too. So mm-hmm. think of the iTunes model. Mm-hmm. Well, so I approached CBD, Christian book distributors, didn't really get a response back. But through generous giving, I had met the Green family from Hobby Lobby that at the time also owned, or they still do, own Mardell Christian bookstores. And they ended up buying, uh, I went to them to invest in it. I get an email like a day later saying, we're not investing, we're buying it, give us a number. And so the part of the deal was I had to consult back to them for three years on implementing this in homeschooling and other ways it could be implemented. So that was a great, great time, great family, really enjoyed being with them and learning a lot about generous giving, but also just in the way they ran retail, which was amazing. They're they're a great family. Um, Mark Green, Stephen Green, David Green, the whole family, their, their children, I got to know them as well. And they're giving, the way they do giving, it's just amazing. And so it's just crazy how that, that happened. And it was in that time that I had just designed an iPad-based learning platform for a pharma company out in California that I held the rights to. So I kept the, the digital assets and the technology, but I did it for a pharma company out in California. And one morning at coffee table, I'm showing it to my youngest daughter, Mary Claire, and her statement basically was, well, why is it my curriculum on an iPad? You know, why, is it, why, am I going through, why are we going through all these books when I could do it digitally? So, yeah, that's a great question. 
So then I went to all these homeschool companies I knew, trying to get them to put their curriculum on a digital platform, and no one would do it. Why? They were worried about their intellectual property. They said, if it's IP, it can be copied. I said, guys, I can take your book to China and make 100,000 copies in one day. What, what year is this? So this would have been in probably 2000, sometime around 2000. Don't know, it was after that, so 99, probably 2008, 2008, 2009. So iTunes is around at the time. Yeah. And iTunes, one of the big stumbling blocks that Steve Jobs came into with iTunes was, you know, these record labels not wanting MP3s to be cut. Exactly. It, it ripped and, and sent off yeah. because of Napster yep. and, and these peer-to-peer sharing sites. Yep. They developed technology yep. that you couldn't copy that MP3 whatever, right. so that way it, you wouldn't be able to play it outside of iTunes mm-hmm. if, if you copied and pasted it. There was yep. like a digital licensing with it. Yeah. Why not develop that with these? Exactly. And we had built a proprietary tool for preventing anybody. I mean, you could only create the content on our platform with our tool. So if you didn't have our tool, you couldn't do it. So we, knew, we owned the tool. Again, it's a SaaS model. We had security around it. Just could they, not get they, anybody to do it. Nobody would do it. Wow. And then, so I, I'd been fortunate um, through, again, Generous Giving's been a, a, a great ministry, not only to learn from on giving, but also to meet great people. And in that, I met Truett Cathy, and, and in that, I went to them about, hey, would you be willing to invest in this and you know, build a platform? They got you know, involved in the beginning, didn't go through the whole, whole way. But just it was just things like that people I'd met. And so I put together this idea that, well, if nobody's going to do it, let's go build our own digital curriculum. And was fortunate enough, the Greens stepped in, another a great person named Jess Carell and his team up in Stanford, Kentucky stepped in. And, you know, we put together about a little over $7 million to build a K-8 curriculum. And a fellow Holy Smoker was set to be tagged to be your president, wasn't he? Exactly. Pete yeah. Mara? Pete Mara. Pete Mara came in. Um, he, we convinced him to leave Microsoft. I don't know if Pete's also a Citadel grad. And I forgot that. Yeah, we I forgot we, that. Yeah, I got. Um, I think it was Jess Carell told me about Pete because he was from Kentucky, and so we got. I had Pete come down to our other house. We lived here in Charleston. Spent a couple of days with us, and I just said, "Hey, man," and he was mission minded, education minded. Even though at the time he was a rising star in Microsoft, just a good dude. I love Pete. And oh, um, Pete, get your ass back to Colorado. We got to get your episode. <laughs> and um, so Pete joined us. And then, and also Daryl Hill, from who one of the founders of Generous Giving, or the founder of Generous Giving, he was one of our partners and investor. And he's encouraged. He says, "Mitch, you know, there's a, if we're going to do this, we need education company. We need an education guy to take the helm." And we got Dr. Neil Nielsen out of Covenant College in Chattanooga to be our CEO. So we just had a. I mean, we had. Talk. I mean, all stars. Um, got mm-hmm. a CFO out of a pharma company in Atlanta. Another brother named Doug Hooper, who came on board. I mean, you know, it's just one of those things you're like, man, we got the best investors. We got the best team. We hired the best people, and we're building out this K-8 curriculum. And it was taken off, and then it came to a halt. And that was the hard part. Um, we had just the, the board. We just had some disagreements on direction. And... Um, my, Someone wanted to focus on only homeschooling, and yeah, and, and you, you, you know, God you, gave, you want you wanted to do schools as well, and yeah, so yeah, because we had so my 
my mission was to enable Christian education everywhere. I'd been traveling to India, Africa, Indonesia, um, I mean, all these places. Yeah. And everywhere I'd go, I'd go visit Christian schools, Christian colleges, you know, churches, whatever. <clears throat> and I came to realize we in America create probably 90% of the world's Christian education. Really? But that we, much? But we don't know how to export it. We're still trying to send books. You can't get books in India. You ever try to put a book on the back of a bicycle in India and take it around? Now, I mean, just, we just, we, our minds are so small, we don't think about these things. And everybody, no matter what country I was in, if you're in India, it's a Tata phone. If you're in Indonesia, it was, everybody was using Samsung. Hong Kong had a- Apple. They were Apple people. But, you know, it's just, it's a mixture. But I said, if we could just get it digitally, like the version Bible, that had been there. And that really gave me an idea. Hey, man, there's some things we could really do here. Um, but my whole thing was enable, you know, Christian education everywhere. And we had just signed, you know, focus on the family, ACSI schools up in Colorado Springs and all these people. And then, you know, and I get it. I understand it. I look back and, you know, you always look back. You say, man, there's things I could have done better. And I could, probably could have done things better. But it was just, it just wasn't working. And so we departed. And so mm-hmm. it just went, it just literally vanished. And you had a hard time with that. I went through a depression. I didn't get the, I wouldn't say like a physical depression that you need yeah. to hear about, but I was on a funk. I yeah. never failed. I never failed in business. And you didn't think that the dot com crash and losing all that value in stock was a failure? Mm-hmm. It was just. This is business. Okay. Losing other people's money and seeing a vision, a dream that you felt like God had given you didn't pull through. That put me in a funk for, you know, several years. And I just could not, you know, I had guilt. I had anger at myself, embarrassment. You know, I just, again, I never failed. You know, everything I'd done had been successful. And what, mean, what, year, what, this, what, what, what year did this this all kind of ooh, um, fall apart? Must have been about 2015, 2016. Okay. Never, seven or eight years ago. Yeah. And, um. You know, I mean, to give you an idea, and I don't say this in a cocky way, not only just for me, but for companies I was a part, like helped with and, you know, took an interest in or whatever. Now, I'd raised 20-something, $30 million with a one-page plan. I knew if you could explain business on a one-page plan and show people the value of it and the opportunities for it, you didn't have to create... 20-page business plans, 50-page decks, and all that. And I just, I, I just had that ability to do that, like to put, a, to create the vision, the mission, values, the numbers, and everything, and, and show how this company is going to operate and grow it. And, and I did that successfully all the way through. But then I got to this, and I was like, man, what the heck? So um, I just consulted. I did some consulting for a while, and thought I'd probably never do another company, and. At the time, I still owned Root Loud and kept that company. But I just kind of, that was kind of, I just used that as my company for billing, for consulting and everything. I, you know, because I'd been doing that for so long, I still was getting asked by universities, churches, ministries, and all this to help them create platforms and create content. And, and I knew that business inside and out. So I would do that. And, um, it just, it took a few years. And then finally I was with uh, Jess Carell at a men's retreat in Kentucky. And I went up to him. I said, man, I just want you to know, I apologize. this guy lost, you know, two and a half, three million of his company's money. And I said, Jess, I'm sorry. He says, what are you sorry about, man? He said, 
I got deals to go down every day. He says, Mitch, it, it wasn't you. you know, he, he, he just gave me comfort in me and said, listen, man, it happens. Mm. You just got to get back and kick the game and get going again. Ooh. And it was, and he really released me of that. And um, that just really, I came back rejuvenated and said, okay, it's time to get back in the game. And then, of course, during COVID, you know, everything kind of slowed down, but I started working on a platform. And my whole thing is I, I like downturns because I know that my competition is going to pull back, and that's when I want to go forward. Um, it's just I've always done that. I, I, I have no problem with a downturn market. That's when I want to grow and take advantage of situations. So we, are, we were able to put together a platform, put together a team, raise some capital, and rebuild RootLow to a, kind of a new, you know, new company today. And that's kind of where we are today. And what's the focus of RootLab? Yeah, so I told you in the past, we were doing a lot of different verticals. And, and I just realized I, I didn't want to be in multiple verticals. It was just too hard. I wanted to be the best at one thing. And one of the industries that I did enjoy, even though I've never really worked in it, I did enjoy the restaurant hospitality industry as far as the training and the, you know, because of the, turn, the problems they have with turnover and training. I said, hey, this is a good one to maybe focus on. So one of the things I came to realize when you need to do work for Chick-fil-A and Darden and McDonald's and all these different companies, I kept realizing 80% of the training I'm doing is consistent restaurant to restaurant. Like, you know, Clean Darden would hire me to do the same thing this company would do, but it was, you know, but it was, I mean, look, it was the exact same training. Like cleaning the fryers. Cleaning a fryer, mopping a floor, hand sanitation. I mean, just basic stuff. So I came to this idea that let's focus on hospitality. Let's go ahead and build out what I call 80% of the content that's consistent unit by unit. So that they can, because my whole thing was, you think about a, a good restaurant group, then let's take Chick-fil-A. You know, Tria would say in general, you know, all we do is make a chicken sandwich. But you look at what they wrap around that chicken sandwich was what makes Chick-fil-A unique. And so it's that, well, I call it the 20% rule. It's that 20% that's different than your competition that makes you unique. It's just your culture, you know, it's your values and mission and you know, all those things that matter. So I said, if we can take away the, what I call the mundane things that they know they have to do so they can focus more of their time on the things that matter, the customer experience, the product, that gives them more time to excel. And, you know, again, hospitality is about a customer experience. So if we could help them be better at that, then we could take away the things they don't have to deal with every day. And so that's what we do. So our whole thing is to be the onboarding training platform for the hospitality industry. And that's what we do. Hmm. I love it. Great team. And you tell them passionate about it again. I mean, you, you got a re- relatively small team, but small you're team. tight. Yeah, we're tight. But I'll tell you, I got the best of the best. Um, you know, I, I look at when I'm, I'm big on selection and interviewing, and it's about putting the best people together. And you don't need a lot of people. You get the best people. And then you start filling the gaps where you realize you're getting inundated with these recurring things. You can find somebody, you know, God created somebody to love to do that. So you can find that person that's got passion, purpose for that thing that nobody wants to do or can't do. And you hire that person. And that's kind of the way I operate. I've always operated that way. And you're working with some bigger uh, food chains. Yeah. The biggest one right now I work with is based out of Colorado, Tom's Watch Bar. And, that's uh, the biggest? It's the biggest work with right now. Right oh. now. Yeah. Yeah. I, like I'm doing, well, there are 3,500 people now. And our goal, our goal, when, so 
we still consult to some of the big ones, but when you look at what, what I'm focused on with this group, it's generally brands with 200 employees to 2,000 employees. That's kind of our focus because yeah. they don't, they're so small, they don't have training in place. They may not have three training managers and they're trying to open, you know, they're scaling. I need to open up another restaurant. They just don't have the tools to do it successfully. They're printing off manuals and handing a physical manual. You can't hand a manual to a 20 year old kid today. They don't look at it. You got to create video and interaction to the content so you can use it to teach them, but also for coaching. Like if they do it wrong, hey, watch this video so I can coach you how to do it right next time. And so that's why we focus on that model. So I'm trying to literally get away from the big guys. You would think that's crazy, but but again, I'm about recurring revenue. I can focus on these little guys and build recurring revenue off of because it's an annual license to use our platform. And and you're you're you've modeled your recurring revenue differently than your competitors. Exactly. Yeah. So what we do differently, um, our competitors. So if you think about a restaurant group, you know, let's just say they have forty percent turnover on an annual basis, and they got a thousand employees. So instead of a typical license where they train, you know, your license. Okay, so if I go into you today and I say, okay, I'm gonna license it for a thousand employees. That's where you are today. My competition will license them for every person they train. So if it's a forty percent turnover, their license fee is basically based on fourteen hundred people, not one thousand people. We don't do that. We know there's. We're in this game with you. We know you're going to have turnover. So our first thing is we don't. If you grow that year, and I don't care if you have a hundred percent turnover. It's for the amount of people we started with for that year. That's the way we do it. And so the next year on recurring, we still stick with how many people you have, not how many people you think you're going to train. So that's a big one for us. And the second one is, is we guarantee our product is going to make a change in your business that the second year we reduce the license fee the second year. Most recurring models, exact fee year to year, we go down because we're guaranteeing you you're going to see change because what do we do? Our goal is to create right behaviors. That's all we're trying to do. We're trying to help you create right, consistent behaviors so you get a better product, you have better customer experiences. And hopefully we create a product that people are engaged, find a purpose in their business, and they do enjoy it because they learned how to do it right the first time. You know, a lot of times people get, my daughter's in the industry right now. Her frustration is she's never been trained. They tell her to go do something. She, they've never trained her on it. How do you close a restaurant? Hey, go close a restaurant night. What do you, how do you close a restaurant? Where's well, cleanup? You know, the whole, the whole motto in the, in the industry is you close to open. So when you close the restaurant, it's to be so clean, you can open tomorrow like that. And they didn't teach her that. So I had to educate. I'm sitting here teaching my daughter how to do a close for the group she works for because they never trained her. It's consistent in the industry for the smaller groups. And um, so anyway, that's really what it comes down to. So our goal is, hey, we're going to, we believe so much in our product and what we're going to do for you. We're going to reduce our fee the next year because you're going to be more successful. And nobody does that. Mm. So, What's your big vision? Big vision. Uh, you know, every company I've started, I've built to sell. Not this one. Why? Because um, when I got to the end of it, I thought that was going to be satisfaction with the number of zeros in your bank account. But when you look at the people you just invested eight and 10 years in, Ooh. you realize that you're leaving them behind. And so this company is being built so they carry it forward and own it. <clears throat> Not And own it? And own it. They're going to own it. That's beautiful, dude. Yeah, they're going to own it. That my goal which, is- which, which I always like. I, I always like the fact, I always like it when entrepreneurs have that kind of mindset where I, I, I love supporting employee-owned businesses. Mm-hmm. There's something about that that, if you're working there, you're a part owner. Right. And 
you're personally invested in it. And I, I always feel like those kinds of organizations, they seem to just have a little bit. Yeah. Because you think a, when you a can, nice culture that is helping those people out. Right. So when they come in Monday morning, they're coming in for themselves, not just me. That's the key. And I wish more would, would capture that idea. I mean, there, there, there seems to be this real populist movement. We, we've been talking about RFK yeah, and, and yeah. the politics of, uh, of what's currently going on. I felt for years now, uh, especially after I left working for Dobson, that we need to really kind of move to that model where we're really empowering the, yeah. the frontline people and giving them something a little out of what yeah. we're doing. Well, nothing. As I told you, I'm not a micromanager. You know, I tell people, I'll hire you to make this. I'll help you make decisions, but you got to learn to make these decisions yourself. I can't make every decision for you, no matter what it is. So it's just another level of empowerment that not only yeah. are you making your own, you're making yeah. the decision based on your, because you know, if you make a bad decision, it's affecting the bottom line of the company, which is your company. So it has just all this ramifications going forward. So this one is, this, this one will end, I don't know, my death, then buy me out hundred percent, whatever, but they will own it and they will carry it forward. And you're going to stay involved in some way. Oh yeah. Yeah. I love this too much. And I love the people we've got, um, and, and there'll be more people coming on. Yeah, well, I've never had much turnover in my companies. That's one thing I've been very proud of. I didn't have hardly any. Here's what I always told everybody that's come to work with me. I say, here's my guarantee to you. I can't guarantee you're going to work for me the rest of your life. That probably won't happen. That really doesn't happen much in corporate America anymore. But I promise you this. I'll be your stepping stone. Ooh. I'll, I will that's... treat you. I will educate you. I will develop you. I will be your reference for what comes next for you. If you find another opportunity that I can't supply for you, I, I can't meet your need. You want a title? I don't have that title. You want that job? I don't have that job. Um, you want to be in this location? I don't have that location type thing. I'll be your stepping stone to whatever that is. And it, the greatest thing for me today is just a, few, you know, a couple months ago, I had a guy that worked for me like 15 years ago, asked me to be a reference for him. And he hasn't worked for me for 15 years to be his reference. Mm. That's the joy I get from the relationships I build with these guys, is that they still trust me to say, would you be my reference? You know me as well as anybody, be my reference. Mm. So that's to me is the joy I get from. But, but you know, when I started out in business, my goal was to be on the cover of Inc. Magazine by the time I was 40. I had that stupid idea. That was me, I wanted to be that person. Now, I could care less about that. Um, I'm not trying to build a company with hockey stick revenue growth. You know, it just skyrockets. Uh, I had an old Jewish guy work for me one time. He used to say, 10 cents, 10 cents, 10 cents. It all adds up. And I said, you know, that's what we want. We want consistent growth that we can maintain and manage. And again, build the right team that can manage it and not get outside of our bounds. And I've done that. I've, out, I've out, as old investors say, don't out, out, don't outpunt your coverage. You know, I don't want to do that. I want to stay within our, you know, what we can do and just operate in that manner. Have any idea what you want to do after you sell it to your employees? Cut grass or bush hog. It's my favorite thing growing up. I've always just loved being on a tractor. <laughs> being on a tractor. So I told Ashley, I said, I'm either going to go get me a tractor with a bush hog and just go bush hog property. Or I'm going to go work for a golf course and get up at 4.30 in the morning and go cut grass early in the morning, put some some good music in, and just go cut grass because they're, they're one of the greatest feelings I have. is you know I had a kid um, interview me one time. <laughs> I had a kid interview. This is like in my 40s. I was like my mid-40s. So this is before I had my my big failure and um, or big experience, whatever you want to call it. And yeah. um, 
he interviewed me. He says, Mitch, of all the things you've done in business, what's giving you the most satisfaction? And I hadn't, didn't even have to think about it. 17 years old, I'd been plowing all day for one, one of my cousins, plowing a big old pasture. I mean, it must have been 200 acres. I was, I was on this thing all day, dusty. Yeah. It was no yeah. cab, no air condition. It's middle of summer. I am dirty, dusty, stinky, everything. End of the day, sun's going down. I pull the tractor around, and I can see every line I had put in the ground for 10 hours that day. And that, I said, you know, that's satisfying. I saw what I had accomplished. And I said, you know, that's what I try and do every day. Now it's in people. It's not, again, it's not necessarily the zeros in a checking account. It's the people, and those are things that are important today. But that was the greatest feeling in my life is to look back and see everything I've done. So I still cut my own grass today. I love cutting my grass. I love it. I mean, if you can see, I, we've been going for a week, and I look at it, I'm thinking, tomorrow. Last, last, last night, or was it Friday night, we walked, oh, I need to cut my grass. Mm-hmm. And um, I still love doing it. <laughs> uh, I love seeing the lines that I put in the grass. That's my fields is my lines and my grass. So, <laughs> Mitch Smith, let's get to rapid fire questions. Rapid fire. How's that stick treating you? Very good. Love it. I will congratulate you. Most interviews that I do, including even my own, let the cigar go out and you forget because you're talking so much. You, you've, you, you've stopped and you've kept that thing going. Oh, yeah. You've been right. puffing away while we've been talking. Yeah, you're I, I, you're, I you're a pro that. with that. Yeah, my, my <laughs> friends tell me I can smoke two cigars before they smoke one. <laughs> when did you first try cigars or pipe? I growing up in the country, we would go after football, you know, football on Friday night. We'd take our trucks down to the river and catfish all night long. And, of course, mosquitoes, you had to have swisher sweets, which were the nastiest things. So we did it primarily to keep the mosquitoes off of us. We, you know, we didn't think about off and all these other things. We just sat there and smoked these nasty cigars and all night long in catfish. And that was my... That was when I started doing it back in high school. But my appreciation came to it at the Citadel. We would go smoke cigars at the Citadel. Talk about that. Talk talk about like your first experience at the Citadel with a good cigar that you appreciated. This is a crazy one. I don't know if they do it anymore, but it used to be when I was at the Citadel. um, Again, when you're a knob, you you, you literally eat at dinner. It's called bracing. You have your chin down on your chest and you square your meals. What's that? So, you know, you, you literally do your fork up, go up 90 degrees and back. Like, it wasn't just bring it to your mouth. You had to go up and in. It was just crazy. It was just, you know, it's just typical stuff they do. But Thanksgiving was the first, we call it mess, first time eating where you got to be free. So you took uh, the webbing we used at the cell, you, know, you see crosses, you know, on yeah. your chest with, the, you know, the, the white ribbing. You had to make ties for everybody at your table. So a table generally included a senior, some, a couple of seniors, some juniors, sophomores, and the knobs served the upperclassmen. Well, Thanksgiving, it was like being at mess at home. Everybody served themselves. We had to, so two things you had to do. You had to make a tie out of your webbing for everybody at the table so you would decorate them with crazy stuff. And you had to bring a cigar for everybody. Hmm. And at the end of dinner, at Thanksgiving dinner, you could put your feet up on the table and light up cigars at the table. So you got to be with the guys. So you wanted to bring the best cigars for these guys because they would remember that. You didn't bring Swisher Switch. You you went to the cigar lounge and bought good cigars. And so that was my big, when I think about this, I always think about that Thanksgiving dinner, 
smoke-filled cafeteria room. Everybody's smoking cigars. 2,000 cadets smoking cigars. So no, no ventilation, nothing. It was like a fog. And just that day, I'll just never forget it. Never forget that day. That's beautiful. Yeah. You ever do pipe? I do. I'm not as good at it. My accountability partner for 25 years, Stone, he's a pipe scotch guy. I'm a cigar bourbon guy. But when I'm with him, sometimes I'll have a pipe. I love the flavor, love the smell, but I just, I, I'm not good at the relighting and the pack. I just, I, I've never been properly taught. I do enjoy it, but I still take a cigar first. Favorite cigar or pipe tobacco? Uh, I'd say Padrones. I love the Olivia series, especially the Millennia V's. My father, I mean, just a, I, it's, it's rare I find a cigar I don't really enjoy. Most expensive cigar you've ever smoked? Opus X. I don't remember what series of all that it was, but I remember that was you know, probably, I don't know, $100 cigar or whatever. I, that was a celebration cigar. And don't remember, I just remember I went in there and I said, I want your most expensive cigar. <laughs> and because we were going to celebrate. And I, I, it was one of the Opus X cigars. Best dollar for dollar cigar you get? Hmm. That's a good question. You know, I, I say, you know, when you down here, you know, we have JR outlets and sometimes I'll go in there and just find one that's, you know, you know, it's got a good, maybe a Habano wrapper on it. Sometimes I'll take a Maduro and, you know, buy their offs or whatever, just buy a box of them, you know, yeah. for, for like a yeah. dollar. I mean, it's just so cheap, but that's kind of, you know, there's nothing particular. I mean, I just don't, I don't like flavored cigars. I like just a good, I'm probably more drawn to a good, just anything pretty much Nicaraguan. Those are ones I kind of drawn to. Where's your go-to place for your smokes? Back porch. Uh, actually, it's with our group. You know, we have a nice group here of guys that we put together about four years ago. Sitting down with these guys to have cigar is, is probably the best because just the stories and laughter. It's just good conversation by fire. And you've built a, a community around here in your neighborhood. Yep. Inviting guys. Let's talk about that. Yep. So... How the idea came about was holy smokes. So I got to know Kay and Steve and you and a lot of great Vance Patterson, a lot of great guys out there. And I was out in Colorado Springs when I had the Dew Company, and y'all invited me to a holy smokes at Vance Patterson's house. And when I saw that, I'm like, man, this is genius. So anyway, I came back to Charleston, and um, the one things I realized here was, you know, a different environment here. But ultimately, I was sitting here on my back porch one night by myself having a cigar and bourbon. So I just took a picture of it, and I live in a neighborhood called Hamlin Plantation. And I just literally put on the Facebook page, took a picture of the cigar and bourbon, said, Men of Hamlin, if you're interested in getting together to have a cigar and a, bur- or a drink to talk about being better men, better husbands, and better fathers, hit me up. 42 guys signed up that night. And some wives signed their husbands up. It was crazy. And from that, you know, we've built a great community here. We get together every other Thursday night, generally, in, when the weather is permitting. And we get together on three houses. One's my house, and a guy named Ed Lugo and Andrew Lee. We just kind of rotate it around. And uh, we just, you know, we'll have 30, 40 guys at a night. But it's just become a community, and it's a great thing for, we have a rule. We have two rules, no women, no politics. And the other one is, if you're a first-timer, you get a free cigars and free bourbon for your first time coming. And that's really be able to invite new people in the neighborhood to come in and find fellowship. And it's all about community. It's a little different, um, but it just allows me to really get some one-on-one time with guys that are just you know, maybe struggling in the area so I can hopefully minister to them in some fashion. And you've seen some real transformation. Mm-hmm. We've had some guys that um, 
have been on this porch and made a confession. And, uh, you know, it's just interesting. Um, you know, so last year, Ashley got, and I got invited to a baptism. Uh, so it's just, that's what it's about. It's that one-on-one time we get with guys. And, you know, you and I have talked about this. You know, one of the questions I generally ask these guys is, you know, guys, I do get some one-on-one time, taking the young life approach, earn the right. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my question is, you know, if you're, our, you know, a lot of guys in our group are in their 40s and 50s. And my question is, you know, inevitably, when we grew up, we grew up in the church. So I know you're not going. So what happened? And just want to know their story. What point in their life did church not become important? Did the faith not become important? The community, you know, because now we're trying to build community. So we start using that as a reason we get together. So anyway, that's just a real big thing for me is just find out a guy's story. You know, what's your favorite liquid pairing with your smoke? You know, I probably stick with Woodford. That's always been kind of the bourbon I've always liked. And, you know, there's times I'll, you know, have a Buffalo Trace or Blanton's or whatever. But, you know, there's a Costco three miles down and I can go buy a handle of Woodford fairly inexpensive because every night I like to have a little sip. And it's just it's just been my go to bourbon. Most interesting person you've ever met through cigars. Hmm. That's a good one. Um, God, I met some great people. I would have to say, I know this is going to sound kind of crazy or, or flattering for some, but Kay Hiramini. He comes up often. Kay. I thought I was a connector in life till I met Kay Hiramini. <laughs> and then being with Kay, you know, Kay's introduced me. some. I've had some great cigars with people Kay's introduced me to. But ultimately, it circles back to Kay. Kay's just... Um, just love that guy. And, you know, Steve and you, I mean, just these guys that I've just been, you know, Steve's been here on my back porch and spent time with us here in Charleston. And, and, uh, you know, it's just, you know, Kay was the center of that. Kay's the reason we have our holy, uh, our cigar and bourbon group here in the neighborhood. He just gave me the vision for what we could do in creating community. So I'd have to say Kay. It would be Kay. Most memorable cigar experience. Mm. 18th hole. Pinehurst number two took all my pastors up to play Pinehurst number two before the U.S. Open that Payne Stewart won before his death and sitting out there smoking cigars and drinking bourbon at the clubhouse overlooking Pinehurst number two. Mm. Best conversation over a cigar. I won't say his name, but a guy that sit right here smoking a bourbon cigar and realized his life was miserable without Christ. Hmm. And that is the most important thing is those guys that you can spend that time with and deep enough in conversation that they realize there's only one answer. One answer. Hmm. All right. The non-cigar questions, Marvel DC or neither? Probably Marvel only because of my son. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So you weren't into, a, you were into comic books at all none. as a kid? I never collected anything as a kid. I had Hot Wheel cars. That was about the only thing I had was Hot yeah. Wheel cars. I didn't collect anything. So, But my son was probably in, in more into that, so I would I kind of lived it out through him, with him. Star Wars, Star Trek, or neither? I'd say Star Wars. You know, I did love Star Trek as a kid. I, I would watch that, but Star Wars, because again, you know, uh, I enjoyed it, and then my kids got to appreciate it and got to do it with them as well. So it would have to be Star Wars. Sports teams. Well, when you go to the Citadel, you, you know, it's not one you would add up in there. But, um, you know, I would say 
you know, being here in South Carolina, I always pull for our South Carolina school, so I'm always a Carolina Clemson kind of guy. But, you know, you know, I've talked about this. I love coaches. You know, mm-hmm. to me, coaches make the difference. But right now, I'd say it may be Deion Sanders in Colorado because I it was love, a rough game last night. Ah, uh, terrible game last night. But man, what what how he loves kids. You know, mm-hmm. it, it, it's about making men, and I just love that aspect. You know, that's what I love about Dabo Sweeney and the way he carries his kids. And you know, it's just I'm a coaches. I love coaches, and I love the impact they make on kids' lives. Mm. Do you have a favorite athlete growing up? Barry Sanders and Larry Bird. I was. I was both of them. I, I loved the death. Barry man. was special. Barry was special. Greatest running back I've ever seen. I know there were some great ones, Brown and all those guys, but I got to grow up and watch Barry Sanders juke everybody and it was and, and, and stay consistent for the sorriest team in the NFL. Those highlights, those highlights. It was so growing up in Wisconsin, I was a Packer fan, obviously, and I also adopted the Raiders because of Bo Jackson. Yeah. But my number three team was the Lions just because of Barry Sanders and just watching him play. I mean, even today, you know, I'll I'll, I'll sit out here and have a cigar and barbecue. I'll watch, you know, probably watch more YouTube. I'm just tired of the news. And I literally watch reels of Barry Sanders and Larry Bird. I just watch the things they did in their career and love, especially the people that, (laughs) that now go back and talk about birds trash talking on the court. Those are the funny ones that I just laugh at knowing how good he was. And he would tell him it up. Yeah. uh, He told him what he was going to do and he would do it. You yeah. know, and but Barry just had had talent out. The, I mean, he was just so talented. He retired too early. He oh, went well. the wrong team. <laughs> yeah, if, if only my Packers would have drafted him instead of Tony Mandarich. Exactly, God. or Dion. Yeah, because or Derek Thomas. I mean, yeah. the top five picks, four of them are Hall of Famers, yeah. and the Packers are the only bust. Exactly. What kind of music do you love? You know. I'm an, I love, I've always loved alternative, you know, so, really? you know, when I grew up, really? you know, when I, when I got in college, I got on the REM and, and so that alternative scene, the cure, Robert, you know, the Smiths. And so that was kind of always, I still the listen Smiths. to music today. Nice. And I, it's, I still, if you look at my Spotify, it's a lot of those guys and, you know, then living down here, you know, we got Hootie and the Blowfish, Darius lives here. So, you know, got to throw in a little Hootie and the Blowfish occasionally, but that's pretty much it. Favorite bands in college or high school that still kind of totally take you back? Uh, like, like, is there one in particular that just... Driving to football practice and my buddy's brand new T-top Camaro with the tops off list and the Van Halen. Ooh, uh, hell yeah. That dude. would get us so pumped up for football. <laughs> oh, man, Van Halen. That was what, they were awesome at that time period. So that they was 84, were. 85. That album, 1984, was beautiful, special. Oh, top. I mean, it still, was, it was I still really listen good. to it. Yeah, there's a lot of the songs that weren't radio plays but they're they're on my spotify playlist exactly. because i would just i would listen to that when i was in junior high just yeah. over and hey, over Jan, and man. over they were awesome that was my band in high school favorite food italian anything italian anything specifically italian that you're yeah, like oh, crazy my, my wife thinks it's crazy i love eggplant parmesan i don't know why yeah. it's some reason or another this could be crazy i fell in love with eggplant parmesan of all places the olive garden <laughs> And they just do it right. The way they make it crispy and everything, they just always did it right. So when I generally go to an Italian restaurant, I generally get eggplant parmesan to this day. Well, you, you, while we were out on our bike ride yesterday and you were kind of, we were riding through the neighborhood and you were showing me, you said you've got these Northeasterners that have moved down here with COVID, bought places, and you've got some New Yorkers that are down here that the, you know, the Stromboli. Oh, man. Yeah. The guys in our, cl- in our cigar and bourbon club are Italian. My neighbor right behind us is Sicilian. 
Oh, dude. I didn't see. You grew up in the South. The only thing you knew about was beef, sausage, and, you know, yeah. chicken. Yeah. Well, man, he brings out a you know, charcuterie board, and I'm like, what are all these meats? You know, I just didn't know about all this stuff. And Jesus, you know, we just knew Swiss and cheddar growing up in, you know, Kershaw, South Carolina. So now, I mean, it's just it makes your mouth tingle, just all the sauces and the cheeses and the meat. So love it. Have you ever had someone, you or someone you deeply trust, have something happen that was unexplainable? I'm thinking maybe something spiritual that happened or, I mean, UFOs are in the news. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, um, I've been fortunate. I, I got invited to be on the board for Mission India, so I spent a good bit of time in India. The stories specifically of all things by the Muslims in India of a man in white, how many times in their dreams Jesus has come to them in their dreams and they go searching and it has been consistent. Uh, mm. It's just been a consistent thing. So I've had an opportunity to spend time with some Christian Muslim preachers in India and listen to their story. And it, what the crazy, it is consistent. It's not one. It's like you've been in a room of 50 and 30 of them had the same dream of a man in white. And you, you can't explain that. But mm. so that's, that's the one that gives me, uh, when I hear it, and I just I always just laugh. It's like, man, what a great story that is. Dogs, cats, neither or both? Dogs, always. Nickname growing up or in college? Sunshine. Sunshine, where'd that come from? Buddy of mine, Chuck Deaver's dad, I guess he, he, he did, instead of using the term bullshitter, he says, man, you really blow some good sunshine because I was always optimistic and upbeat and everything. So my nickname by all those guys became Sunshine. What's one unusual fact that few people know about you? I think I told you in the beginning, I was adopted at five weeks old. I met my birth mom two years ago. Let's talk about that because we, we've talked about that story and yeah. that's pretty powerful. So great. I'll shorten it up. So five years ago, we were helping with, again, I'm adopted. So we help out with adoption agency. And the lady approached me and said, have you ever thought about getting a connect with your birth mom? I'm like, no, I, I had great parents. Well, I did. She says, just remember She's carried this for her whole life. And I said, mm. That's a good thought. She said, even if anonymously, just reach out and let her know everything turned out great. So, okay. Fast forward a couple of years, my kids are doing a project and, you know, what's my nationality? Well, I knew it through my parents, but I didn't know mine. So I did ancestry DNA, did it anonymously to find out I was 50% Irish and 50% Scottish, which explains everything, right? <laughs> so fast forward, crazy thing, I'm watching uh, I love the Phil Robertson family, and they have a podcast, a YouTube podcast called Unashamed. And I was watching it. I watch it occasionally because I, I literally walk through them, love their jokes. But when they get into scripture, I just connect with. Well, I just love the way they look at scripture. One day, Phil had a lot of people may not know this. When Phil had their last son, he went for ten years and got into drugs, marijuana primarily, and, and opened up a bar and left his family. He got a woman pregnant, not knowing it. She never told him. He never knew about it. And then on this podcast was the, re, the rejoining of he and his daughter. Mm -hmm. She found out through his sister DNA that her dad was not her real dad. It was really somebody else and went to her, her mom. And she says, well, your dad's Phil Robertson. So the whole thing about how they had to validate that was true. You know, millionaire and you, mm -hmm. I'm your daughter type thing. And so they went through the whole thing. And that was on a Tuesday night. Wednesday, I turned on my ancestry DNA, made it public. 
reached out to two women that, you know, the way they do it, most likely your first cousin or their, her first cousin, whatever. So I just sent an email and said, hey, my name's Mitch Smith, born December 66, 56 years old now. And more than likely, I was born to one of your relatives. And if you know who she is, let her know everything turned out perfect. If she wants to contact me, here's my address and my information. I get an email back the next morning on my Ancestry DNA message board saying, I think I know who your mom is, and here's her picture, and she looked just like my daughter. Wow. And I said, I think that's her. The difference was I was told by the Department of Social Service, my parents were told by DSS, that my mom was 17, but this girl would have been 21 when she had me. So fast forward, she calls me on a Friday. That, so that was Tuesday, I watched YouTube. Wednesday, I turn on my Ancestry mm-hmm. DNA. Friday, I'm sitting here on the porch having mm-hmm. a drink, watching the golf, and I get a call from Richmond, Virginia, and mm-hmm. a lady says, this is your mom, Diane, and I've been wanting to have this call for 54 years. Mm-hmm. And so we reunited and have had a great relationship. And, and in that, I thought, so about a year before I met her, my hand started shaking. I'm thinking I'm getting early Parkinson's or something. I didn't know what was going on. I didn't go to the doctor about it. I didn't know what was going on. And through being with her, I found out that her dad had it. She has it. It's a handshaking there's a name for the disease. I don't remember the name of it, but you know, everybody thought I was nervous or something, but my hand would shake. You know, we talked about that earlier and said, you yeah. know, not nervous. My hand just shakes. And, and that's what it was. So it was good to find out that uh, my handshake is not through Parkinson's. It's just a simple, it's just a simple disease that I have that I will live with the rest of my life. Do you have a life scripture? Proverbs three, trust in Lord. That's it, man. I, I live it. I believe in it every day, just trust in the Lord. And, you know, when I walk in every morning with a dog, you know, I just go back to the first catechism, chief in the man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And all we can do that is by trusting him. So I always go back to Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. That's it. How do you want to be remembered, Mitch? All I care about is my kids that, you know, they can say, like my dad was for me, he loved God and he loved us, you know, and that's really the most important thing. Mm-hmm. That's the most important thing. Living out so my kids can carry on, and hopefully by instilling to them, they can carry on that same legacy with their children and grandchildren. Last three questions. What does Holy Smokes mean to you, and how has it contributed to your spiritual journey? Most importantly, um, the community you guys created out there is just mind-blowing. And then seeing all the people in the Facebook group, and literally I can go to virtually any town and hang out with the guy from Holy Smokes and have a cigar with them at their house or their lounge. Love that idea. I mean, that's that's what it's about. And but then taking the the spirit of of Holy Smokes and then bringing it to my neighborhood, and in a different light, you know, I have a different bent on mine because of yeah. the people around me. But using the same aspect of being in community, walking together, that allows me to minister to my neighbors because of what you guys set as a model. If you were to have a Holy Smoke with any three people throughout history, living or deceased, who would they be? Can't name Jesus. Okay. Probably saw my, my wall in there. Churchill mm-hmm. is one of my heroes in life. Mark Twain, because I love the laugh and I would love I love his wit. Oh, so good. Love Mark Twain. So good. And um He's one of my three. Yeah. And I'd say yeah, C.S. Lewis. Mm. You know, C.S. Lewis is the one that gave me permission to smoke and drink. <laughs> and tell, you know, it's interesting when you grow up in Southern Baptist, everybody, everybody, I don't mm-hmm. say everybody, but you get, you know. I even had a pastor here in the last few years. Was I'm almost in a way put me down that I was having cigar and bourbon at my house and having all these men at my house to drink bourbon and smoke cigars. 
but you know, my question is, but look at the relationships I'm building. So uh, C.S. Lewis, to me, when I look back at his life, of course, I love his writings. Mere Christianity is one of my all-time favorite books outside the Bible. I, I literally almost read it. Virtually every year I reread that book. Yeah. So it had to be C.S. Lewis. Last question. If we're to meet one year from today, and I splurge and I get something a little bit better than the, than the Woodford Reserve, get you a nice bourbon. What are we celebrating? Pappy 15, profitability in the company. <laughs> Company's profitable and growing. That's really, that would be the, the real celebration, the, you know, from a business standpoint. Holy smokers, let's pray into that. And if you know anyone in the restaurant industry that's in that 200 to 2,000 employee range, Let's get this guy some more business and connections. <laughs> Absolutely. Let's get this guy some more business and connections. Mitch Thank Smith, you. I love you, brother. Thank you, brother. This was so awesome being here. Thank and you. I'm telling you, I'm going to be back out here. And bring the boys. We can go hunting, fishing. Love it every day. So. Hey, everyone. I wanted to announce that we have Holy Smokes gear. That's right. We have swag. We currently have hats, shirts, stickers, like for your vehicle or your travel humidor, magnets, even branded bourbon glasses for a limited time, go to holysmokes.club and click on the shop tab. That's holysmokes.club. I'm super proud of the shirts. They're made with Bella Canvas shirts that are soft and incredibly comfortable. The hats fit wonderfully, which can be a problem for those of us with big noggins. We plan on having a lot more to offer, like Guayabara shirts, additional t-shirt designs, beanies, polos, hoodies, cigar accessories, and much more. Check it out. And even if you don't make a purchase now, be sure to sign up for that email list, as I've thrown a couple big discount coupon codes for those exclusively on that list. So click the shop tab at holysmokes.club. Thanks. Thanks.